Welcome to the Kidney Week 2020 Reimagined Podcasts, where ASN President Anupam Agarwal will be hosting discussions about various topics in nephrology. ASN thanks Akibia Therapeutics for support of this podcast. I'm uh, Anupam Agarwal, President of the American Society of Nephrology. Uh, with us today uh, for this podcast, we have Dr. Kathleen Liu, who's a nephrologist from the University of California, San Francisco, and Dr. Kenar Javeri, who's from New York. You both have been uh, really active uh, in this COVID-19 pandemic uh, with patients uh, with acute kidney injury, you know, needing dialysis, CRRT, and so on. So maybe uh, if you all can give us a brief overview of your experience uh, during this pandemic and how this experience may have evolved over the past few months. Um, you think things have gotten better where you are, or have they gotten worse in your opinion? So maybe we can start with Kinar. Oh, thanks, Anupam, and thank, well, Kathleen, nice to meet you. Um, so, uh, well, we, as you all know, New York was hit pretty hard in March, and I still have those uh, almost like PTSD nightmares of uh, my weekend call in mid of March where all of a sudden, all those consults that were fun, interesting onco-nephrology electrolytes were changed into COVID, COVID, COVID. Um, it basically became, within two weeks, the entire hospital where I work, which is around 900 beds, was an entire COVID hospital. So uh, you can just imagine the consults going from a census of 20 to almost 100. Um, so we had to deploy uh, more nephrologists in the hospital, you know, redeploy some of our fellows so that everyone was in the hospital. Um, I would say we were getting a consult an hour almost, and we had almost like a 37 to 40% increase in renal consultation over a month or two. And and then that led to the increased need of CRRT. Almost every patient that we were consulted on either required dialysis or um, continuous form of therapy. Um, uh, even the need orders of CRT went up like significantly, almost like 500-fold in, in our health system. Um, so those were just like, the, we would just walk in and it would just be consoles after consoles. Um, and it, it continued, I would say, for most of March, April, and early May. And we really had to make sure we had enough supplies, enough personnel, enough nurses um, to provide for dialysis. And I think ASN's um, committee on COVID was very, very helpful, got all the New York programs together and made sure that everyone was trying to get what we need in terms of supplies. Our health system was really on top of it as well and it gave us enough uh, sort of monetary help to get whatever we needed in terms of CRRT and um, you know personnel. And uh, then I would say mid-May, June kind of started trickling down almost back to the old census, but almost like a lull, because I guess people were scared to come to the hospital for even non-COVID stuff. And then July, August was back to almost non-COVID. And September, October, we're starting to see a little bit of trickling up of cases, but it's nowhere um, the amount of COVID cases we saw in March, April. And almost the the percent of AKI we saw was almost 40% back then. I would say it's even like less than 5% right now. Uh, We're not getting called as much as we used to get called. But that's sort of a brief overview of what happened. 
Kathleen, can you tell us your experience on the West Coast? Yeah, I would say, you know, our, so I'll say, I guess, sort of by way of background, right, in addition to being a nephrologist, I'm the medical director of our medical ICU, which has been one of our two predominant locations for our COVID patients. Um, we obviously were have, been, were have been very fortunate on the West Coast. We did not have the extreme conditions that Kanar had in New York kind of during the first wave. We certainly had patients with COVID, with AKI, right, and very rapidly had to change protocols, uh, you know, for CRT, for example, to try to minimize in-room time for the nurses, deal with the issues that everybody's talked about with anticoagulation with these patients, quite different from kind of, from our usual patients. We had a fair number of patients with AKI. We have a large kidney transplant population uh, and catchment, and not surprisingly, a lot of those people um, developed uh, dialysis requiring AKI. Um, I would say, you know, we did have sort of that second surge in the summer with increased numbers and very similar to what Kanar described, the incidence of AKI kind of in the second wave, much lower. Um, uh, and uh, for whatever reasons. Um, and, you know, now, you know, oddly, as the rest of the country is starting to enter wave three, we have not seen that uptick yet for reasons that aren't clear to me, but we'll, we'll see what happens. So in, in your opinion, what what is important to keep in mind when you're treating a kidney patient who has COVID or a COVID patient who develops acute kidney injury? Kathleen, you know, maybe you can go first. Sure. Um, I mean, I guess when I first heard you sort of ask that question, Nupam, I, I think the first thing I thought of is sort of extreme flexibility, right? I think um, uh, all of, you know, sort of from a global perspective, right, this has been sort of a highly dynamic time where the whole hospital system across the country has been sort of stressed at once. And so, you know, being a little bit mentally flexible about what supplies, what will be in short supply potentially that day, nursing staff, heparin, CRT solutions, cartridges, et cetera. So I think that's one thing. I mean, I would say that I think these patients are, have been a little bit different than our usual sepsis-associated AKI patients. I think we learned in the first wave that probably some of these patients came in relatively volume deplete after being at home for a number of days, afraid to come to the hospital with high fevers, perhaps diarrhea. So they came in more volume deplete than I think we think of our typical AKI patients. And then I think the other big thing that comes to mind for them is just the their the, the the sort of hypercoagulable state um, that they have that I think we still don't understand very well, frankly. And you know, um, we were fortunate to never be so swamped uh, during any of the surges that we've been able to tailor our anticoagulation strategies quite a bit. And I'll, I'll note that different patients seem to be at quite different places on that hypercoagulable spectrum. Some people tolerate CRT with not much anticoagulation. Other people really do need full dose anticoagulation to tolerate the circuit. Kenar, um, do you have any thoughts on that topic? Yeah, so a couple of things. So first, um, I think when we saw the AKI that was happening, and it was happening so fast, we were trying to still learn, you know, what just happened in front of our eyes. It was so rapid. But, you know, we noticed that some of it was volume depletion. Um, we, thought, we saw a lot of rhabdomyolysis, too. But there was a fair amount of volume overload, too. A lot of these patients did have cardiac events and, um, you know, heart failure as a result of that, leading to more of a cardiovenal syndrome. And then we also were seeing a lot of these clotting, DVTs, 
uh, thromboembolic events and thrombotic microangiopathy. So it, it was not always a straightforward slam dunk, but majority was, you know, volume depletion and ATN, uh, which we would see in most of the septic patients also. So, you know, uh, while I agree with Kathleen, I also disagree that they might actually be very similar to sepsis. It's just that we were overwhelmed with the virus at one area or part of the country that maybe we're seeing all manifestations at one time. Uh, and maybe that's what it was. In terms of anticoagulation, I, you know, there were times where CRRT, we were patients both on um, heparin and ergatraban to really prevent the circuit from clotting. So I've never done that in my life uh, to have both anticoagulations on board, but I, we just had to, uh, otherwise they would clot, uh, even with the very high blood flow rates on CRRT. So it, it was just a very challenging time in terms of making sure the anticoagulation was perfect. Um, and in terms of the CKD patients and dialysis patients that came in with COVID or renal patients, they, um, you know, they were at a higher risk of mortality. We assumed and the later showed, and most have shown that, and we just had to be very careful, like contact tracing them and making sure the units where they interacted with uh, the other patients were not, um, you know, getting infected. And, um, you know, I think a lot of us nephrologists lost dear and uh, patients that were very dear to us for years, um, dialysis patients uh, during this pandemic. Kenar, did you uh, see a lot of transplant patients at all, or Kathleen? Yeah, we actually had a fair amount admitted to the hospital uh, with transplant-related uh, AKI, um, but some of them were just more pneumonia admissions. Um, uh, but it was not as many as dialysis patients or AKI non-transplant. So, Kenar, so I was just going to say, I think we actually largely agree. I think my only point was that as opposed to your usual sepsis ATN patient, these yeah. people had more volume depletion up front than some of them had more volume depletion up front. I mean, I usually think of my septic patients as not being that volume deplete when they come to the ICU. True. Um, yeah. Yeah. Uh, and, and, you know, I think um, our experience in Newpom locally for our, for our quaternary care hospital has been that we... We, we did see transplant patients in part because they got referred back to us for um, for for quaternary care. Um, so we so we have had a fair number we've had a fair number of patients with kidney transplants in mm -hmm. our ICU with COVID ARDS, but that's probably because we have a huge denominator with a very large transplant program. Sure, sure. And, and, yeah, and we were fortunate, I think, in that because we weren't overwhelmed. Um, one of our local units, for example, in San Francisco, was rap that that was a brand new unit was able to rapidly convert to a COVID shift, and so yeah. patients from all for-profit dialysis chains in the city were able to cohort on shifts fairly quickly. I mean, one thing Anupam and Kathleen we noticed is our PD patients. Well, there were not that many admitted, which was actually tells you the beauty of PD and home dialysis and keeping them safe away from all this. And uh, if uh, of all the 400-some patients admitted to a hospital on, on dialysis, only 11 were PD patients. So a very small number of came came into the hospital, even though they were infected. Uh, they might have been, you know, stable at home or they just didn't get infected. For the patients who were, you know, fortunate to get discharged uh, with COVID and AKI, have you all seen any with CKD or prolonged delayed recovery from AKI in the clinic setting? So, yes, I have. Uh, a few of us have. Um, uh, if they did recover, they did fairly well, actually, even even if they were on dialysis. 
Um, my, one of few of my patients actually have a creatinine of a 0 0.8, 0 0.9 after a few weeks on HD and or if they were in the hospital on dialysis. So if they actually recovered, they did fairly well um, and not a good, not a great amount of them stayed on dialysis. So um, I think we should really do our best to save these patients. I think that's the take home mm -hmm. message, you know. Kathleen, did you see any patients uh, as follow-up? So, um, so right, by true disclosure, I'm a nephrointensivist, um, but uh, so, so I'm not an out, so, we, so I do not have my own personal outpatient clinic. I think to Kanar's point, our patients who've had AKID have done very well, and I don't think we actually have discharged anybody from the hospital still on dialysis. We actually have one of our uh, AKID survivors speaking on Saturday uh, about his experience, a more, mostly about his COVID experience, but also about sort of coming off dialysis. And even our patients with transplants, uh, you know, who had CKD before have been able to come off and make renal recovery to come off dialysis. What do you think is our biggest blind spot or a gap in knowledge when we are trying to understand how COVID affects the kidneys? Clearly, we've learned a lot, but there are still major gaps in knowledge. What, what do you perceive some of those to be? I mean, I think it's what, I think it sort of speaks to what Kinar spoke to, right? That COVID-associated AKI is many different conditions, right? Some patients have rhabdo, some patients have sort of a sepsis ATN. There's clearly this collapsing glomerulopathy that's been associated, maybe TMA, right? And so I think, you know, understanding sort of what's going on with a specific patient and how to tailor, you know, sort of how we can best tailor treatment for individual patients, sort of beyond the dialysis piece, let's say, is sort of a, a large unknown. Yeah, so I think the two gaps that come to mind is one, again, like why do some patients just get a regular ATN and some get a thrombotic angiopathy and some get this collapsing or other forms of GN. We actually saw ankle vasculitis with it. We saw membranous. So why do, why are some getting these GNs and some getting um, the TMA? And also, is, is the viral load really important? I think it is. I think the viral load in March and April in New York was so high that maybe that's what's why the AKI is much more prominent as opposed to now. Um, and maybe that could be the reasons why we're seeing such different, you know, variations, or it's the treatment that's having an effect. Um, you know, we're giving a lot of patients steroids and remdesivir now, which we were not earlier on in the course of uh, March and April. So I think those are some places where we, we still need a lot to learn. Um, mm -hmm. I think there is a nice abstract today I sent from the Bronx, uh, from the Brooklyn folks, um, showing that the AKI got significantly better earlier on when they gave steroids um, in patients who did not get steroids. So I think that'll be important to see if the early, early aggressive treatment with steroids and remdesivir, if that affects the renal outcomes. Tell us a little bit about what do you think our research priorities should be in terms of COVID-19 related research? Kathleen, you want to take that first? Oh, I, I'm thinking about that. Um, Anupam. I mean, I do think one area that I think is that can, that I think we've both highlighted, but I think to Kamara's point, right, these patients actually have a very good chance of making renal recovery if they are able to survive, right? So I think, you know, yes, there's a lot of research we could do about pathogenesis, pathophysiology, but I think from a patient-centered perspective, sort of 
understanding what we can do to optimize recovery is really important, right? And I, and I think um, prognostication in these patients has been a real challenge, right? I mean, our experience has been we've had some people who have, you know, had very prolonged courses in the ICU, but are able to survive and then recover remarkably well for people who were critically ill for six, eight weeks. Um, so under, you know, again, understanding sort of how to, how to prognosticate when you're not in massive overwhelmed pandemic, I think is something that is still somewhat challenging for these patients. Sure. Kenan, what would you think uh, would suggest as research priorities that would be COVID-19 related for the kidney at least? So this is where I put my onco-nephrology hat on. And because, again, like most trials, these patients were exclu- are getting excluded, CKD, dialysis patients. I think it's about time, it's, you know, all these patients get included in remdesivir trials or other, you know, large, um, you know, trials happening with COVID. Because otherwise, our patients are always going to get neglected. I think that's the, one of the biggest research priorities uh, that we should have. Um, and other than that, I think focusing and learning the cause of AKI and the pathophysiology might be important. And I don't, I don't know if this is something that we should proceed. But I've read and learned a lot about machine learning recently, and I think predicting um, the need for CRRT in the ICU in in any septic patient, it could be COVID, maybe or any AKI, will be I think important um, because what we learned in this pandemic is supply. Uh, issues that come up. And if we can predict the percent that will require CRT, we can predict then how much stuff we will need uh, to treat these patients. Well, thank you, uh, Kathleen and Kenar. Really appreciate both of you taking time um, of this busy Kidney Week reimagined to spend uh, with this podcast and uh, really appreciate everything you've been doing on the front lines, taking care of patients and um, with this COVID-19 pandemic. So, Thank you both very much. Thank you, Anupam. Thank you, Anupam, for having us. ASN thanks Akibia Therapeutics for support of this podcast. The content of this podcast is for informational purposes only and does not constitute medical advice in any way. Thank you for listening to the Kidney Week 2020 Reimagined Podcasts.